Hebrews 11, 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, you see, he's doing here what all of these men and women of faith do. They don't act blindly. They don't leap into the dark. They think about what God has revealed. They listen to the word of God and they consider and they choose the way of faith. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In these verses, the examples of saving faith move from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. The patriarchs give way to Moses and later Israelites. This morning, we're going to look at two examples of saving faith related to the life of Moses. But before we look at those two incidents, let me, let me remind you why it is that the preacher of Hebrews can give these examples to his hearers. I mean, have you ever sat back and thought, why is he telling us all this? Why is one example of faith after another? Why is by faith, by faith, by faith repeated dozens of times? Well, it's because their faith is fundamentally the same as each one of this preacher's hearers and each one of us who believe. The saving faith of new covenant believers is not of another kind than the Old Testament believers. If it was, none of these examples would apply to us. There wouldn't be any lessons for us to learn. Right? None would offer us help or encouragement. In other words, our faith isn't different from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Joseph. In fact, it's not even of a different kind than Abel and Enoch, who are mentioned earlier along with Noah. All of those last three lived before the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, Old Covenant. And their faith was in the same God and the same promise as ours is. And so they can be our exemplars. We can learn about faith from their lives and apply it to our own. Now, this is incredibly important if you are ever going to rightly understand the Bible. You must believe what I just said or, or you will miss much of the Bible. For example, and I'm going to give you several examples here, and this is all still introduction for those of you following the outline. 
For example, because there is one God, one faith, and one promised Messiah, this means you can read the Old Testament with profit. You have the whole Bible, not just the last 26 books, not just the New Testament. All of it belongs to you. Certainly, some of the things in the Old Testament don't apply directly to you in the same way they did to saints back then. That's even true of some of the things in the New Testament scriptures. But the central truth about God, about faith, about trust, about listening to God's word, about responding in obedience, about a coming Messiah, that's all the same. Let me give you another example. This truth helps us to properly form a covenant theology. That is, an understanding of how the big picture of the Bible works. The promise of the coming seed runs through all of the covenants of salvation. It's the same promise. And, and this means that these covenants are organically related to one another. The story of the Bible is not one of unrelated covenants or dispensations or administrations. The Bible is about the one plan of God to save his people by faith through his Messiah. Amen. Mm -hmm. That's all there's ever been. That's right? And that means that the promise is actually even more fundamental in the Bible than the concept of covenant. Because the promise of salvation through a coming seed existed for men immediately after the curse is given in the fall and before another official covenant of salvation is made with men. In fact, a long time went by, thousands of years before the next at least clear example in Abraham of a covenant for salvation being formed. There were men and women of faith, saving faith, before the Abrahamic covenant. Again, much more could be said, but this is what's important, I think. There's one Lord and there's one faith for all of human history. New Covenant believers are part of the one people of God. <laughs> and so we can profit from these examples of saving faith. Now, for some of you, you might have said, I never really thought about why I needed to. It's in the Bible. I think it's helpful to me. So I, I read it and I try to apply it to my life. Good. But there's more than that. Yes. And I would have you be rich in your knowledge, not bare bones. So, the lengthy introduction. All right. Let's now look at these two uh, examples from Moses' life. The first is what I've called Moses' ancestral faith. This is found in verse 20. Moses' ancestral faith. Now, we read the account of Moses' birth from back in Exodus 2. And most of you know the story well. Uh, Jacob and his sons had gone into Egypt in a time of famine, and this was God's way of preserving them so that one day the Savior of the world would come from them. But after some time, they were enslaved by a new Pharaoh, 
And he became worried that the Israelites had so increased that they would take over the country. And so to keep them under, he commanded that all Israelite male children be killed at birth. This is an edict of infanticide. Now Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, both of the tribe of Levi, came to find out after this edict that Jochebed was pregnant again. Well, she has a safe delivery, and a boy is born. And that led to a test of faith. That's what these two stories are both about that we're going to look at, look at today. It's, it's a test of faith, and they are required to make a holy choice. This is about choosing. Well, what was this act of faith? Well, the act of faith wasn't done by Moses, of course. He's just an infant at this point. It was an act of faith by his parents. By faith, the verse says, his parents hid him for three months. They did not obey the edict of the king. And this reminds us again that saving faith not only acts, it's active, but it always acts in line with the revelation of God. Faith isn't self-defined. Faith isn't an action rooted in ignorance. Faith always acts, saving faith, true faith. Faith that is pleasing to God always acts in accordance with God's revealed will. Now, these parents knew they were facing a choice, right? They could kill their son and obey Pharaoh, or they could hide their son and obey God. In one sense, this is a very easy choice (laughs) because it's so clear. And these two Levites obey God. They chose God's way. Now, this verse gives us two reasons why they acted this way in faith, right? And the first reason is this. It says, um, they saw the child was beautiful. I've summarized it this way, and I'll explain why I have summarized it like this. The child was beautiful in the sight of God and his parents. Now that, at least if you're like me, that strikes me as a very odd reason. I mean, that's puzzling. First, I mean, isn't every newborn beautiful to mom and dad? We have a lot of new moms and dads here, or at least with new children. Uh, I can promise you this. I haven't interviewed them, but I'm absolutely certain. If I said, is your baby ugly? They would go, no, and they might want to hit me. There are no ugly babies born to moms and dads. Now, there are ugly babies born. (laughs) But no mom or dad has ever had a newborn baby born ugly, right? You know, that, that old great aunt who always speaks before she thinks, and te- yeah, the baby might be ugly to her, but every infant is beautiful to mom and dad. So 
How is this a reason for faith? I mean, like, how does this make sense? And a second question. You know, why did I in my summary line include God thinking that Moses looked beautiful? Well, let me try to explain, and I'll, I'll point you to a couple of other scriptures. First, this word translated beautiful, as we said before, uh, that's what it is in most Bibles. It means just that, fine, lovely, uh, goodly, if you have an older version. And, and the word is actually a very strong word. It's emphatic. And so it could be, and it sometimes is translated as unusually beautiful. I think one even puts it this way. He was an extraordinarily beautiful child. In an attempt to convey this, some Bibles even describe Moses here as no ordinary child. In other words, there was something really special about him. And it was obvious somehow, some way from his appearance. So to look on infant Moses was to be impressed that this child was at least unusually blessed in appearance and presumably also in other ways by God. But, but there's another account of Moses' birth found in the Bible, and it's, um, it's in Acts 7.20. This is a good example of if you read the Bible a verse at a time, and when you read a verse, you just try to understand it by looking at that verse, you won't get very far as a Christian. You won't grow very much. Every verse in the Bible is in a context. And ultimately, the context of every verse is the whole Bible. So there are many, many places where a verse that you look at and you puzzle and you think, this, is, this seems kind of odd. Like what? That seems like an odd reason. What's going on here? Well, maybe there's some other places in the Bible that help explain it. That's exactly what we have here. Stephen, in his speech, his defense... In, in verse 20 of chapter 7 of Acts, says this. At this time, Moses was born, and he says, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Now, Exodus didn't tell us that, although there are some hints about it. Because as we said before, like, who, who wouldn't say their child's beautiful? So why would you say it here? What, it, it must have some kind of special connotation. Well, Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says um, he was not only beautiful to his parents in that normal, you know, family way, but he was beautiful in the sight of God. Literally, it's Moses was beautiful of God or before God. This means that the child was divinely favored. And in some way, this is conveyed to Amram and Jochebed, that their child is special to God. In other words, they knew there was a future for this child. And so, of course, normal parental love for a newborn would move them to save his life. There's something in Moses' appearance. There's some blessing from God that they can tell just by looking at this child that tells them in a more than ordinary way, this child must be saved. So this is the first reason they acted in faith, to hide Moses. The revelation of God. Right? Secondly, the parents feared God more than Pharaoh. This is the second reason that they tried to hide their son and save his life. 
The verse says they were not afraid of the king's edict. As you know, Pharaoh was an absolute ruler. His word was law. To obey, disobey invited punishment, perhaps even death. And remember, Moses' parents were slaves. How could they possibly defy the king? By faith. By f that's the answer, by faith. That's how you defy a king. By faith, they lived even as slaves, ruled by the commands and plans of the unseen God, the God they believed in and put their full trust in. God's ways, God's laws, God's promises were more real to them than Pharaoh's threats. And so their faith leads them to fear God more than the king. Faith so filled them with courage that they could flagrantly disobey Pharaoh. Remember, they've got a moral choice to make. And faith led them to choose life and what we would call civil disobedience. Well, quickly, two uses from this first story. God is worthy to be obeyed before all others. Amen. Faith teaches us this. Saving faith gives priority to God. Have you ever talked to someone who says they're a Christian, and you wouldn't have known it except they told you because their life doesn't seem to reflect it, but in the estimate of charity, you hope and you, you pray and you, you look for good signs, and, and yet every choice in their life, every time something's placed in front of them, you know, there's the world, or there's their family, or there's this and that. And whenever there's that in God, they, they don't ever seem to give God the priority. Right? Well, the question has to be asked, is that saving faith? And the Bible's answer is, no, it's not. It's, it's very clear. It's not. It may be a kind of faith, but it's not the kind of faith that saves. Not the kind of faith found in this chapter. True Christians put God first. I hope you do not believe that damnable heresy that says you can have Jesus as your Savior and not as your Lord. You will not meet Jesus as a friend if you go into eternity that way. And I say that not as some short blowhard, but as simply someone who's trying to show you the Bible. Amen. That's all through the Bible. How can, how can God not be Lord? <laughs> when he commands you to believe, because that's what he's doing in the gospel. He's commanding you to believe. You say, well, but he's offering, he's hoping, he's desiring. He's, yeah, in a sense, he is all that. But it's all rooted in the command. What shall I do to be saved? Repent and believe the gospel. Amen. That's a command. That's an imperative. You must do that or you will perish. You must exercise saving faith. Are you obeying the Lord in pursuing him as a savior? Or are you picking and choosing what parts of God you want? Well, what I'd really like is, I'd like all these benefits. You know, I'd like to have my conscience cleansed. I'd like to not feel so guilty. I'd like this and that. 
I certainly don't want to follow him as a disciple. I certainly don't want him to rule my life. Well then, as I think it was Augustine famously said, if you pick and choose, it isn't God you choose, it's you that you are choosing. You're not believing in the God of the Bible, the savior of the Bible. You're believing in yourself. You're inventing a revelation and you're putting your faith in it and you will perish. It's important to remember that in every test of life, there are always two competing kings speaking into your soul. There's King Jesus, and he gives his laws, and he gives his promises. And also speaking to you, also present is King Self, or King World, or King Pleasure. And he gives you his laws and his promises. And so like Moses' parents, we are faced with a choice. Who will we serve? Saving faith chooses to serve King Jesus. Knowing that not only is he the only true king, but, it, but that his promised rewards are, as the hymn says, certain joys and lasting treasure. King Jesus' ways are better. He is worthy to be obeyed before all others. Secondly, this story about faith teaches us that hope believes the promise even in the worst situations. Faith overcomes fear. Saving faith overcomes fear and enables us to hope in God even in the worst situations. I mean, how could slaves defy Pharaoh? How could the circumstances be any worse? They were facing the loss of all future male Israelites, and all of their promises hinged on whether or not a certain future male Israelite would be born. I mean, this is the, the attempt to destroy the Messiah. But faith believed the promise and trusted that God could and would somehow rescue them. And he did this through this special child, Moses. Now, I hope in reading the story and thinking about Moses, you see that there are a lot of parallels with his birth and his work with Jesus Christ. And that's not for this sermon, but that'd be a good Bible study for some of you who want to explore that. All right? Now let's look at the second story, which I've called Moses' adult faith. This is in verses 24 to 26. So notice we have moved from infancy to adulthood. We've gone from a few weeks, a few months old, to 40 years old. The story is, of course, that Moses grew up with exceptional privileges. He was part of the royal family. Wealth, position, power, really anything he wanted were all his to have. But at 40 years of age, he too was faced with a choice. He could choose to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, or he could identify himself with the enslaved Israelites. So like his parents, his faith is tested by a choice. 
his faith is displayed in his choice. So, which of the two ways would he go? Which king would he serve? The Christ or the Pharaoh? Verse 24 tells us that his act of faith is that he made this choice. He made the choice. First negatively and then positively. Negatively, it's described in the end of verse 24 and the end of verse 25. Moses refused an Egyptian identity. He rejected the gods, the religion, the lifestyle, and the pleasures of Egypt. To choose these would have been sinful according to the end of verse 25. So by faith, he said no to all of this culture and wealth, all of this opportunity, all of this sin. But his choice is positively described in verse 25. Instead, he chooses to identify with the people of God, with Israel, the mistreated, impoverished slaves of the Egyptians. In other words, he knew who he was and what he should be. Perhaps his mother, in raising him, taught him these things as a boy. Oh, what a great privilege it is to have believing parents. One of the greatest gifts in all the world. Perhaps he learned it in other ways. But Moses knew his God. He knew his people. He knew how to think clearly and correctly and make the right choice in this situation. And so he makes the deliberate decision to be an Israelite. Now, verse 26 contains the explanation for this action. I mean, if, if we weren't believers, we might say, Moses, are you crazy? Or are you just stupid? I mean, do you have a death wish? <laughs> or or do you just, are, are you a masochist? Do you just somehow perversely love pain that you want to identify with an enslaved people? Oh no, on the contrary. Verse 26 tells us that in making this choice, Moses was thinking with great clarity. He was thinking in accordance with reality. He was even thinking and choosing based on his own personal best interest. You see, he listened to both kings, King Jesus and King Pleasure, and he realized something. King Jesus offered suffering for a short while and eternal rewards of indescribable glory forever after that. Seems to me that's a pretty clear calculation. King Pleasure could only offer fleeting, that is, temporary pleasure in this life, and then not a single pleasure after that for the rest of eternity. So Moses chooses the short-term reproach of God's people, what's here called the reproach of Christ. That's how closely Christ is identified with his people. You can say either word and mean the same thing. 
He chose the temporary suffering so that he could receive eternal joy. Was Moses deranged? <laughs> no. He was brilliant. This is wise. This is the holy choice, the best choice. This is great thinking. And that should teach us three things. First, saving faith always has self-denial as one of its first actions. Jeremiah Burroughs, my favorite independent Puritan, has some sermons on this verse that I read years ago. The title of the little book is called Moses' Self-Denial. Burroughs gets it exactly right. It's exactly what this is about. He understands this faith story correctly. God called Moses to give up some things. In fact, a number of the commentators will tell you that in all the history of the Bible, there's no man who gives up more than Moses gives up here. This is, except for Jesus Christ, this is the supreme example of self-denial in the Bible. And yet he denies himself to gain glory. <laughs> he denies himself in order to get out, get ahead. Why does he give these things up? Because temporary mistreatment would be followed by eternal reward. Right? He was looking to the reward. The words are continual. He didn't look once. He kept on looking to the reward. This was a constant motivation to him. There's an eternal reward. There's an eternal reward. There's an eternal reward. If Moses would deny himself temporarily deny himself sinful pleasure and follow Christ, he would have greater wealth than all of Egypt. He would have salvation and all of the pleasures of God. And this is what faith requires today. It's always been this way. This is what Christ calls us to today. King Pleasure tells you that you can have your sinful pleasures now and you can have good things from God later. He says you don't have to deny yourself. Take him as your savior. You don't need him as your Lord. But King Jesus tells us that that's not an option in a sin-cursed world. If you will deny yourself and follow Jesus Christ, in the next life, your reward will be great. So will you, will you deny your own desires, your own sins? Will you give your life to Jesus Christ? Will you repent? Will you turn to God? Will you exercise faith in the promise? Will you deny yourself and choose King Jesus? You say, well, I, I never really heard the gospel quite like that before. Well, let's move to the second point. Christ calls every man to make this choice. Amen. He calls you to make a choice. You know, sometimes Calvinistic or Reformed Christians are accused of denying that men make choices or should make choices. That, of course, is a mistake. Reformed Christians agree with the, with the scriptures in this. 
in the Bible, Christ calls every man to make the choice that Moses did. To choose him as Lord and Savior. To exercise faith. He wants you to think. He wants you to, like Moses, consider. Jesus wasn't for, for quickie conversions. He said very difficult things like, unless you leave mom and dad, you can't follow me. Unless you do this or that, you can't, you can't be my disciple. If, unless you are willing to, unless you, on and on, the list goes. It's like, man, you need a course in better evangelism tactics because this isn't going to get you any converts. Mm. Oh, no, no, it will. It will get you real converts. Amen. It will get people that God has enlightened with faith and who look at it and listen to God and consider, actually think about what they're being called to do. And I would urge you to do the same thing. Think about what God calls you to do. He calls you to the reproaches of Christ. But that is greater wealth than all the wealth in the world combined together. <laughs> and so I'm calling you to act. I'm calling you to choose. In faith, act. In faith, choose. In faith, deny yourself. Yes, faith is the unmerited gift from God that enables your choice. If you believe, you will find out that your own belief was the gift of God from you. Philippians 1.29, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, right? It's a gift. But you must exercise it. You must believe. God doesn't believe for you. God doesn't repent for you. God doesn't deny himself in your place. You must repent. You must believe. You must follow Christ. You must do this. And he calls you to do this. And he commands you to do this. And he desires that you do this. If you would be saved, you must choose Christ. Thirdly, the choice for Christ results in the greatest rewards. You know, Paul in another place, really unrelated to this story, says that the, the foolishness of God, right, is, is wiser than all the combined wisdom of the world. Of course, God isn't foolish in any way, shape, or form. But what men consider to be foolish that God says, even that's way wiser than everything else put together that men manufacture. Well, the in, a, in, a, in the same way, the poverty of Christ is greater riches than all the treasures of sin. You know, sometimes, I, I remember hearing this multiple times when I was growing up. I, I'd hear some preacher, some evangelist, some person say that, uh, well, they would deny that sin brings pleasure. I never understood that. Um, I got pleasure when I sinned. Now, it was always followed by misery. I, don't get me wrong. I've taught you, I hope well, sin always leads to misery. It also sometimes leads to, to pleasure, to joy, to happiness, to a sense of fulfillment. To, of course it does that. Isn't that what verse 25 says at the end? That in sin there are fleeting pleasures. No, they're, no, they're not long-lasting. No, they're not truly fulfilling. No, they won't. Do you any good in the next life, etc., etc. But sin can be pleasurable sometimes. 
Not all the time, but sometimes it is that. I mean, why else would people who are seeking their own pleasure take the fish hook from the devil? Well, because he hides the fish hook, right, with the bait of pleasure. Come do this. You'll find fulfillment. You'll find joy. You'll, you'll satisfy your lust. You'll have, and, and so you bite. And there's pain. And there's pleasure. The fish hook's barb hurts. Why? Because misery is concealed with the bait of pleasure. Real, felt pleasure. Yes, it's temporary. No, it doesn't ultimately satisfy, but it feels good. And it's just plain stupid and unscriptural for Christians to deny that. But if you are thinking rightly, if you, by faith, believe God's promises, then you recognize that Christ has infinitely more pleasures than sin can offer you. Sin's pleasures are temporary. Christ's are eternal. Christ's bless you body and soul. Christ's pleasures satisfy you as, in a way that only the one who created you would know how to design and do. This is just a way of saying that when you choose Christ, you are choosing what is best for yourself. So put your faith in Christ. If you're a Christian, continue trusting him. If you're not a believer, trust, place your trust in Christ. Why? There are many good reasons. One of them is it's in your best interest. And the, and the Bible appeals to your best interest over and over again. No, it's not the ultimate reason. No, it's not. But it's a valid reason. It's a reason God gives. It's an incentive God gives. This is the way God, God's world works. If you'll deny yourself and worship God according to his way, not according to your way, what happens? You're blessed and edified and built up and strengthened and as, as no other way can do. This is the way freedom works in God's world. If we don't choose our own way, if we enslave ourselves, if we deny ourselves and choose Christ's way, what do we find? Relief and freedom is the paradox of the Christian life. Do you want the greatest reward imaginable for yourself? Of course you do. Of course you do. Well, then do what Romans 2 says. Do you seek glory and honor and peace and immortality? Then choose Christ. Choose Christ. Those things come with him. There's no other way to gain them but through Christ. And if you have chosen Christ, keep choosing Christ. Keep following his way. And know the greatest rewards, some in this life and, and to the full in the next. But if you're an unbeliever, I urge you today, for a reason I'm not sure I've ever preached before, but... Choose Christ because it's what's best for you. Amen. Do you want to be happy? Choose Christ. <laughs> Do you want relief and joy? Choose Christ. 
Do you want to live with the most perfect being forever and ever? And in a graduated way, become happier and happier for an infinite amount of time? Then choose Christ. <laughs> choose what is best for you. That is Jesus Christ, and all of the riches of his grace and glory will be yours. Let's pray.